to the Gibson Girl Review, the historic fiction podcast that rescues old books from the doom of mere decor and puts them back where they rightfully belong, in your to-be-read pile. Each episode features a discussion and review of one of the famous or forgotten novels published during the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. Join us every other week as we uncover the history and humanity found within these antique treasures and explore just how entertaining and relevant they still are more than a century later. to the Gibson Girl Review. I'm Katia Labonté. And I'm Amy Drown. We have another, well, maybe not great historic novel, <laughs> but we have another historic novel to share with all of you today. Yes, and if this is your first time listening to the podcast, we hope that you'll scroll through the playlist, check out our previous episodes, Yes, and please remember to hit the subscribe or follow button wherever you're listening to this. So you could be sure to catch all our future episodes. I'm actually really excited to be back in the studio today. In fact, today's book notwithstanding, <laughs> this might be my favorite episode yet. Why? Because this is the first episode we are recording where I am not on cold medicine. <laughs> so yes. hi, my name is Amy Drown and this is what I actually sound like. Oh yeah. my goodness. We have definitely had our share of health challenges in these first episodes, guys. Right? Like, whoever had this brilliant idea of launching a podcast in the dead of winter with two people who live in extreme northern climates with a lot of cold and snow should be shot. In spite of the fact that it was you, which would leave me as sole host. <laughs> oh, so. yeah. It was me who had that idea. Well, <laughs> blame the cold medicine. Yes. And that's actually a reason why we don't do video recordings, because throughout the first episodes, we'd have had to stop a lot. There was yeah. coughing and sneezing and sniffling and all the fun stuff. Right? I mean, what an editing nightmare that would be. Yeah, for sure. So suffice it to say, we have been doing the best we can, both physically in terms of our health and technologically in these first episodes, but we are completely aware that editing and post-production can only do so much to make us sound reasonably normal and not like we are gargling broken glass. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew I had such a great Satchmo voice? <laughs> but it is truly a delight to be back today, finally feeling and sounding like ourselves. Yes. And actually, that reminds me. When you told me about your mom's reaction to <laughs> listening to her first episode and the questions she had. You mean about the music? Yeah, yeah. She thought it was you playing the piano for a theme song. <laughs> Yeah, spoiler alert, it's not. She also asked, besides that, how are we actually doing these recordings? Yeah. And I know she's not the only one who's been curious about this process. No, I've gotten some questions. So maybe we could take a minute and talk about it today? Sure. Well, for starters, our theme song is not me. <laughs> it is actually composed and performed by an incredibly talented artist named Richard Wilkinson. And every time I hear our theme song, I have to dance in my chair a little bit. It's so much fun. Yes. I've got a link to Richard's website 
in our show notes so you guys can go check out his work he's got some really great stuff yeah i love all the music we have on this show especially like the different theme music for each episode and each book it's so much fun yes well of course music is a big part of my life and also my own writing i'm kind of john hughesian that way i score my novels as i'm writing because i just i have to have a soundtrack in my head so there was absolutely no question about incorporating music into this podcast too so that's part of our process yes and for those of you who haven't figured it out yet here's another spoiler amy and i are not in the same studio nope or the same town nope Or even the same country. (laughs) No. So I looked it up on Google Maps the other day because I was curious. And it turns out the shortest distance between us is 2,227 miles. Isn't that a fun number? (laughs) It would be a 37-hour drive. Yeah. We don't have that kind of time. (laughs) No. I'm in Canada and Amy's in Montana. So right now we use virtual recording. Yes. And we work it out. (laughs) Yes. And of course there are two different time zones and we do have other commitments outside of the podcast. So we can't always record an entire episode all the way through nonstop in one recording. Yeah. Which is another reason for not having video recordings right now. (laughs) Yes. There is definitely some splicing involved. Not to mention recording from home like we both do, that has a whole other kettle of fish, like washing machines and (laughs) siblings and cats and neighbors outside trying to jackhammer the ice (laughs) off their sidewalks. Yes, and the internet connection. Yeah, so all this to say, our process is perhaps a little haphazard right now because we're just getting started, but we're making do. We're doing what we can. And, of course, the process all begins with us choosing what book to read and talk about. That's actually the easy part. Yes. And then Amy has a lot of research to do before we even schedule our first recording session. So that takes time. Yeah, (laughs) it can sometimes. Although I am such a nerd. I am an Enneagram 4 with a 5 wing. So that nerdy side of me actually loves the research part. And I love reading it when she gets it. (laughs) But once we choose the book, we read it, we research it, and then we record our conversation about it. And then the recordings have to be downloaded and edited and transcribed and then uploaded to our distribution service and our website. And we are doing all of that ourselves at this point. Maybe someday we can outsource it. We'll have the resources to do that. Mm -hmm. But for now, this is a totally 100% in-house operation. So each episode that you listen to probably takes a good 18 to 24 hours to produce. Yeah. And that's not counting the time to read the book. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But we enjoy doing this because we love these books that much. Yes. And we really appreciate all of you guys sticking with us through this podcasting journey and bearing with us as we continue to learn and grow our skills as podcast hosts and producers. Speaking of learning and growing skills, guess who else had some learning and growing skills to acquire? Amy, I think that's the worst segue you've ever done. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know, I know. But it is the point of Gibson's life that we have reached today. Yes. So again, if you're just tuning in, we take a few minutes at the beginning of each episode during this first season of the Gibson Girl Review 
to explore the life and career of Charles Dana Gibson, the artist who created our namesake, The Gibson Girl. In our previous episodes, we looked at his early childhood inspiration to pursue art and how he finally took his first steps into a professional career as an artist through his work at Life Magazine. But there was one journey that every artist in the late 19th century simply had to make in order to be considered a true professional. And it's the journey we're going to see Gibson make today. Charles Dana Gibson, or Dana to his family and friends, is 21 years old and has finally achieved a stable enough income from his art career to not only support himself and the folks back home, but also to fulfill a long-desired trip to Paris. Fun! Yes. Now, his route required a brief stopover in London, and he had to take advantage of that. He decided there were two people he was going to visit in London. The first was a tailor because he wanted to get some new wardrobe essentials. After all, he figured he was in the business of drawing well-dressed young men, so it was logical for him to dress like one himself. The second person he was going to go meet, the artist and writer, George de Maurier. Once bedecked in his new clothes, Dana set out on a short pilgrimage to London's Hampstead district to de Maurier's house, knocked on the door, and this is how he introduced himself. I'm Charles Dana Gibson. I'm an American. I draw, and you have been my master for years. <laughs> this was actually not an exaggeration. Dana's technique, if you look at it artistically, reveals that he clearly studied de Maurier's work and artistic style. Georges de Maurier, at that time, was known for his cartoons in the British satire magazine Punch, which was basically the British equivalent of Life magazine that Dana drew for back home. Hmm. And these, of course, included drawings of his own lovely modern women. Right. All this to say, this funny young man showing up on de Maurier's doorstep with this really comic, nervous introduction, <laughs> it was apparently good enough for Georges because he was delighted to meet Dana and the two spent the afternoon chatting about art and France, and when they parted, they were fast friends. Oh. But this was, as we said, just a quick stopover in London, and Dana set off to complete his journey to Paris. And I'm going to let you say the name of where he was going to study because I don't speak French, and obviously you do. So You're doing a good job. I'm trying. I'm trying. So Dana was on his way to study at... The Atelier Julien. He was going there to study for two months and signed up for a bunch of classes and was very religious with his classes and also was surprised when one of his peers greeted him with, are you the Gibson who draws for life? Hmm. So he was already developing a reputation that he didn't even know about. And remember, again, 22 years old. But his life in Paris, he drew and studied during the day and he took in the sights and thrills of gay Paris at night. And the combined effect of this stay in Paris on his artwork was noticeable. Even an untrained person like myself 
can look at his work before Paris and after Paris and you can see the difference. His artistic style became confident, more vigorous, and bold. Self-confidence is Mm -hmm. what it looks like to me on the page in these drawings. He had only been back in New York a short time when the most important magazines of the day began calling him and commissioning his works, including what were known as the Big Three, which is Harper's, Scribner's, and The Century. And, of course, the editor of Life magazine was only too happy to share and sing Dana's praises because, of course, he could also claim the credit of being the one who discovered Dana. Yes! (laughs) He's also getting commissions at this time from publishing houses to illustrate periodicals, essays, advertisements, novels, and more. He was in demand and actually began to be requested by name by several authors who wanted him to illustrate their works. And so, in 1890, in answer to these demands and dreams for artwork that could bring these authors graceful, beautiful, endearing, charming, fictional heroines to life, the Gibson girl at last made her debut. Yay! And we will introduce you to her properly in our next episode. I can't wait. We have so many wonderful old books to share with you here on the Gibson Girl Review, but before we get to today's featured book, I'd like to take a moment to share just a few ways you can help us stay on the air. First, please click that follow or subscribe button on your podcast service so you will be sure to catch every new episode of the Gibson Girl Review as soon as it releases. And if you enjoy the show, we hope you will leave a positive rating and review. In this modern world of algorithms and AI, your five-star ratings and personal reviews really do help others find us. And the more people who listen, the more old books we can save and share with you. And if you just can't get enough of these antique novels and all the fun history we uncover through them, we invite you to become a patron of the show by supporting us on Patreon. Patrons of the Gibson Girl Review receive exclusive bonus content, including digital downloads, advance notice of which books will be featured in upcoming episodes, and even full-length bonus episodes that you can't listen to anywhere else. And 100% of your support goes directly back into producing the show. To find out more, just click the pink Patreon button on our website, gibsongirlreview.com. Thank you for listening and for telling your friends about the Gibson Girl Review. Now here's a little mood music to set the stage for today's all-new old book review. For this one because today's book is a forgotten novel from the Gilded Age that might almost be better off staying forgotten. <laughs> we are only on our third episode and yet our entire show's very existence is going to be challenged by today's book. Yes, because today we're sharing with you 
a novel that we actually didn't like. At least we didn't like it as a novel. Right. And so that book is Miss Bale's Romance or An American Heiress in Europe by William Fraser Ray, first published in 1887. Now, I'm going to fall on my sword here and take the blame for this one because I'm the one who chose it. <laughs> but I swear I had good reasons at the time. Anyone who has been a fan of shows like Downton Abbey or HBO's The Gilded Age knows what a phenomenon it was in the Gilded Age for these American heiresses to marry European aristocrats. Right. Even beyond these TV shows, books and things written about it today really kind of glamorize this American duchess or American princess idea. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to find a novel from the Gilded Age itself that tackled this subject. So I did a little research and I unearthed this book called Miss Bale's Romance. I don't own a copy of this book, and I never will. <laughs> I had never even heard of this book, but it appeared to be exactly the kind of novel I was looking for. And to be fair, it is exactly that. It's a novel about a rich American Harris who marries a European aristocrat. And also, since this episode features the story of Gibson's first trip to Europe, mm -hmm. it did seem appropriate to do a novel that was also about an American's first trip to Europe. It just happens to be a very bad yes. novel. <laughs> so why did we read it? Why did we hate it? Why are we even telling you about this book? Well, this is where I think there's this element of challenge to be met. Because if we here at the Gibson Girl Review believe that old books should be read, that has to include the bad ones too, right? Exactly. And of course, we didn't know it was bad until we read it. And now that we've read it, we have to do something to redeem <laughs> the time we spent reading it. It can't have all been for naught. Yeah, this is like a kind of test for us. If we believe that all old books deserve to be read, that they have something to offer, then that has to include even the bad books too. I feel like I'm heading back into high school debate class, <laughs> and I've just been given the assignment of defending the pro position when I really, really personally believe in the cause. <laughs> But if anyone's up to the challenge, that's us. Yes. So let's start by telling everyone what this book is about. Well, as we said, the subtitle of this book was An American Heiress in Europe. And that's what the book is about. Miss Bale's romance is about a young American heiress named Miss Alma Bale, who, along with her father and mother, travels to Europe for a year to see the sights. They do the grand tour. There's a hint that they might be potentially escaping some bad press back home. Mm-hmm. But in the process of this tour, they travel to many famous places, they meet many famous people, and in the end, she marries the younger son of an English duke. And if this sounds humdrum and stale to you, that's because it is. Yes. Like, that's exactly how this book comes across. Yes. Lifeless characters going through the motions in a, like, travelogue type of memoir. Yes. Or, actually, as the locals refer to them in one scene... They're simply harmless lunatics out for a holiday, <laughs> which is the quote we chose for this episode. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, okay. Already, we've told you, we did not like this book. But what did they think of this book when it was first published back in 1887? Are we just weirdos for not liking this book? No. It appears by reading reviews that this book received a mixture of criticism, 
Some stinging, some polite. Some both. <laughs> Politely stinging. Exactly. <laughs> Several reviews claim it could have been good, but the author's style was very wooden. Yes. Which, quote, betrays the fact that the writer is a novice in this field of work. While other reviews simply denounce him as a bad writer. Yes. And there's actually one review with a line so funny, I just had to share it to you guys. Go for it. And I quote, Probably the writer has crossed the Atlantic back and forth so often as to have lost his bearings as to nationality. He certainly has lost his manners. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. The original reviews of this book were universally negative. Honestly, if I had found them before I read this book, I never would have read it. Yeah. So why? Why was this book bad? Yes, we're going to defend our position here. So, first of all, it's really not what it promises no, to be. No, it's not. Miss Bale's romance is more of Miss Bale's travels and how she found her romance at the end. Yes. There is literally even a good 40% that dealt with someone else entirely and his yes. whole story. Yes, oh my gosh, that annoyed me so much like there's this whole subplot that takes up half the book and it doesn't even belong no (laughs) it's like completely random exactly if we're talking about the surprises that the book gave us i was astonished at the bad style yes it was surprisingly bad yeah as a general rule i found old books pretty well done and Mm -hmm. easy to read yeah but this one was just downright bad bad i have to quote another contemporary review here because they express it perfectly oh yeah (laughs) quote Indeed, the monotonously ascending scale of her fortunes somewhat pals upon the reader's interest. Yes. Oh my gosh. That's really what it is. It's just like one after it the other. Is. I met this one. And yes. then I met this one. And then I met this one. Yeah. Another review says it's a narration of incidents commonplace in themselves, differing little from the ordinary experiences of travel. Yes. And that's just it. It's just detouring and backtracking and rabbit trailing. And I just got so tired of it. Yes. Like, in the very midst of the wedding preparation, we had a two-page backstory dump on some very secondary character that no one actually cared about. Yeah. He could have been introduced earlier or much shorter way. Yes. And that's just one of the many happenings. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that. And I was actually relieved when we found these original reviews because it's like, thank the Lord, it's not just me. Yes. Talking about the surprises of this book, it was surprising in a bad way. Because you get through this book and I felt absolutely nothing. Exactly. No engagement with the characters. There's no plot. There's no tension. Really, the only thing I felt was relief that this book was finally (laughs) over. Yes, exactly. That was actually a challenge to me because it might not be the longest I ever took to read a book. But it's up there. Yeah. And it's definitely the longest I took because I didn't feel like reading it. It was a grind. I was bored. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) I was just dragging myself through, counting down the last 20 pages. Yes. It's long paragraphs of just text in which nothing happens. Exactly. What were your challenges? Oh, gosh. Where to begin? (laughs) (laughs) On the one hand, okay, I will say that there were some amusing scenarios that I did find myself relating to personally because I have lived in the UK and my experience over there, like the ice, Mm -hmm. Americans wanting cold beverages, wanting ice in their beverages. I lived through that myself. So I was kind of like, okay, 
it's kind of funny to see that Americans were that way even 120 years ago. Uh-huh. And also, like, this attitude that Europeans had in the book that Americans are all just blunt and obnoxious, and they're like little disobedient imperial children. Again, that totally mirrored my own personal experience. I had this one guy at my church in Glasgow who would constantly refer to me as the colonial. No way. Yes! Even as a joke, that's not funny. That's offensive, people. So yeah, I could relate to some of these kind of experiences, although that relation was not an emotional connection to this character. Mm -hmm. It was purely on the surface of the story. It was very superficial. Yeah. Which was another challenge because there are just so many stereotypes about Americans and so many absurd caricatures of Americans in this book. As an American... This story to me came across exactly the same way that guy at my church in Glasgow came across. (laughs) Incredibly condescending. And quite frankly, I was offended by this book Hmm. on more than one occasion. And I even tortured myself by reading this book twice. Yeah, she did. Just in case I had been like in a bad mood or a bad frame of mind the first time. But no, it was actually worse the second (laughs) time through. That's why I'm not rereading it. But all that to say, both times I read this book, I just come away with this feeling like there's some big inside joke in this novel that is just way over my head. And once we found those original reviews, I think I could kind of identify why I felt that way. Because almost all of these reviews refer to the fact that many real life people appear in this book. Right. Either outright, like the Prince of Wales, Or they call them thinly disguised. And the problem is, it's 120 years later. That disguise is no longer thin. It's a concrete wall. Yeah. You know, we've talked in past episodes about the loss of some contemporary context. Mm -hmm. That is a major problem with this book. Like, it just feels like there's a whole bunch of inside jokes. People appearing in the book because they appeared in real life. And so it's kind of like the author is having fun right putting real life people in the book and so one of these ads about the book called it the book that all london is talking about and i think it was probably because all those people talking about it in london back then they got whatever these thinly disguised caricatures of people were in the story right and we just don't know anymore that 120 years has created a huge disconnect Mm -hmm. in terms of what might have been funny to people in London in 1887, which we should point out, this book is a British book. Yes. And we'll get to that in a minute. We'll talk a little more about that when we start talking about the author himself. Let's give you guys a sample. Today, Katya is going to do our reading, and she's going to read a scene from Miss Bale's romance that actually talks about the ice incident. So hopefully it's kind of funny. But this will be a great paragraph to give you an example of what this book is like. When another dish was placed on the table, Miss Bale said, Now, I call that real nice, the dish being the simple one of sliced tomatoes. She added, I have not eaten tomatoes since I left America, and I didn't expect to see them so early in the season. She was even surprised to see them in Europe, sharing the impression of more experienced travelers than herself that the tomato is indigenous to America and not knowing that its introduction into America was long posterior to the settlement of the country by Englishmen. She was in high spirits and pleased with everything, except the oysters, and she expressed great satisfaction to find the water bottle from which she helped herself to be filled with iced water. 
Isn't it strange, she said to Mr. Wentworth, that the Europeans do not drink ice water? They do not even seem to understand what it means. The first night Mother and I spent in Liverpool, we rang the bell before retiring and asked the waiter for a pitcher of ice water, and he did not seem to understand me. But after some explanation, he brought us some water with lumps of ice in it, and he looked upon us when he did so as if we were lunatics. We tried to get this at Genoa, Nice, and Monte Carlo, but failed to make anyone understand what we wanted. At Genoa, the waiter brought us some ice cream after keeping us waiting for half an hour. He hung around as if he expected us to pay him extra for his ingenuity in guessing what we wanted. You were no worse off, Miss Bale, in such a matter than all our people who visit Europe. Thirsty people on this side of the Atlantic never think of drinking ice water. Our physicians in Massachusetts say that we suffer from dyspepsia because we drink too much of it. There it is again, the ice water. I thought this scene was really funny because it's still a thing among non-Americans that Americans drink their stuff with ice. <laughs> yes, we do. Most cultures don't, or at least not as much. And I also picked this scene because it shows a recurring theme throughout the novel. This idea that Americans came to Europe and thought the culture would be the same. And how they would stand out like sore thumbs because of how different they are and everything. So I thought it was an important scene to show, as you mentioned, the attitude towards Americans that even the Americans are projecting about themselves. Yeah. I mean, that's really the only theme of the book for me is that Americans really are just these harmless lunatics out for a holiday, which is why we chose that quote as the title of this episode. Exactly. I love how multiple times in this book, these characters call themselves lunatics or are called lunatics. So there's something to that. <laughs> yeah, the characters were just not interesting. They were never characters. They were puppets. Yeah. And despite you getting to meet Miss Bale and her family and her friends and her friend's family and all through the line, I never cared about any of them. Yeah, I completely agree. This book was flat. Yes, very much so. Not even one-dimensional. Like, there's just no life to these characters yeah. whatsoever. Yes. Maybe Miss Bale's father is the only one who's kind of interesting. Slightly. But even then, it's more like he has an interesting backstory. Yeah. That makes him interesting. You don't get to experience him doing anything interesting in real time. Yeah, yeah. So he has like the potential to be an interesting character, but it still doesn't play out. There's just mm -hmm. nothing. Yeah. And I personally see no connections to the Gibson girl. Miss Bale was definitely not one, and possibly the very opposite. Yeah, even trying to think about the story in terms of the Gibson girl, again, I just keep coming up against this book's stereotypes and caricatures of Americans. Mm -hmm. Like, the author is trying to present a typical modern American girl, but doesn't quite get it right. Yeah. And yet... We are still here devoting an entire episode of the Gibson Girl Review to this book. And you at home are probably wondering why. Yes. Why on earth are we still doing this? Well, here is where I've got to start putting on the Defender hat. Or at least the Explainer hat. We've already talked about how bad it is. Bad writing, bad characterization, nothing to recommend it in terms of a fiction story 
in the way that we expect it to have tension and drama and to build to some kind of climax. All of that is missing. Right. And I think the problem with that has to do with the author himself. Mm -hmm. But this is also both the problem and the redemption of this book. It's all embodied in the author. William Fraser Ray, follow along with me here, people. He was a Scotsman, educated in Germany, lived in London, took a career in journalism that had him as a correspondent in America, Canada, and the Orient. Whoa. So that reviewer who said his nationality was confused because he'd crossed the Atlantic so many times was spot on. Yeah. In that now, sense. Now it's making sense. Yes. So William Fraser Ray, he was born in Edinburgh in 1835. He received a university education in Heidelberg, which is the exact university that one of the characters in this book attends. Right, yeah. And he studied and trained as a lawyer and even passed the bar to become a solicitor in London and start practicing law, but he gave it up in favor of a journalistic career. He also did have health problems that made him take frequent trips over to the continent to spas and resorts. Hmm. So all of this to say, if you learn all of this about his personal life, right. that is when Miss Bale's romance finally begins to make a little bit of sense. Right, because several of the things you mentioned actually show up in the novel. But also his being a novice at fiction writing Writing. Right, yeah. This is all very understandable because it's true. This was his first novel. And one of the reviews talked about him being clearly a novice in fiction, but not a novice writer. Mm -hmm. And again, totally true. He was a lawyer and a journalist. And yeah, the book was originally published anonymously, and there was a lot of speculation going around about who could this author be? And I don't know why hmm. they did that yeah. originally. I was thinking like he was sort of patterning like Walter Scott or something and yeah. being like, oh, they're going to love this so much. I'll publish another novel and they'll be like, oh, what's by the author of Miss Bale's Romance? You know, that whole piggybacking off another book thing. Yeah, like it's a publicity stuff, uh -huh. maybe. Or like you said, my first thought was maybe he didn't put his name on it because it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And even he knew it back then. Or the stuff in it or something, like his opinions. I don't know. Yeah, like if it's some kind of scandalous reveal that he has to hide his identity so nobody knows. Mm -hmm. Like if he's yeah. revealing high society secret tell-all something. I don't know. The book came out anonymously in 1887, but by the following year, in 1888, there are advertisements and listings for this book that identify him as the author. Hmm. And when the second edition came out in 1889... Second edition. Yeah. It was a surprise to me, too. This book could have been successful enough to merit a second edition. But by the time that book came out, his name was on the title page. So whatever his reasons for publishing this book anonymously in the first place, it didn't stay a secret that long. So yes, this novel is bad. Bad prose, bad characters, bad fiction. Pretty much everyone, it seems, thought so back in 1887 and again with the 1889 edition. Interesting. I found some reviews from that year that were still lambasting this book for being bad writing. And of course, Katya and I certainly think so now in 2023. <laughs> but even so, Miss Bale's romance does still have something to offer. Right. And that is why we have devoted a show to this book, because it may be deplorable as a novel, but the key to redeeming Miss Bale's romance is to forget 
that it is a novel. Mm -hmm. And this is where all of the history and humanity that Katsu and I always talk about when explore when we read these novels, this is where that is really important. Because if you look at this book through the eyes of the author with his journalistic writing style of just the facts and even this kind of legalistic eye for detail, then you begin to see that this book is actually a bit of a treasure trove. Yes. If you forget the story, which is easy to do because there isn't one, (laughs) and you instead focus on these scenes and settings and facts that he's sharing, Miss Bale's romance actually has a lot to offer about the daily life in 1887. Mm -hmm. And this is something that those original reviews back in 1887 did praise about the book. Yeah. They said, bad as the writing is, this author, whoever he is, does get his facts straight. And that's why they speculated that even though he was clearly new to fiction writing, he was also just as clearly not new to writing. Mm -hmm. I wish I had known that before I read the book the first time, because once I understood that this was the author, this was his background, Uh then reading a story that mentions all of this dry content, like names and births of various yachts and steamships and the types of meals served or the outdoor activities offered at this various hotel in Europe. The types of fashions that you should wear during the daytime or the nighttime. Even the types of books to be read. Yeah. And that's something we haven't mentioned. Miss Bale is a voracious reader. Yeah. Pretty much the only conversations you see her having in the book are talking to people about books. And she loves to debate all of the authors and books that she's read at the time. If you put all of this kind of stuff into character dialogue, then yeah, of course, it comes out very forced and intrusive, as though the author is just trying to show off how much he knows. Right, yeah. And this is where his skill as a novelist is lacking, because none of these facts come across as a natural part of whatever story he thinks he's telling. Mm -hmm. But... If you look at this book like a newspaper article, Mm -hmm. like a Miss Bale's Happenings in the society page of your local newspaper. Right. And the book is even written that way Mm -hmm. with chapter headings and subheadings describing the movements of these characters. Mm -hmm. It kind of starts to read like a true life society page that's documenting these facts and details of a real-life heiress's travels abroad. Yes, absolutely. These are facts of life back then, and he does know them, Mm -hmm. and he shares them with us. So in that sense, Mm -hmm. Miss Bale's romance can actually be a rather fascinating book to read. Yes. My final argument in favor of doing this episode on this book is keeping in mind that He's a European, a Scotsman in England, grew up in Europe. He's been all over the world. And the original audience of this book was also European. So yes, my perspective as an American reading this book, of course, he gets things wrong Mm -hmm. about Americans. Yes. And maybe there was just negative influence. Buffalo Bill had taken his Wild West show to London in 1887. Maybe that just made all these Europeans think Americans were all just like actors in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. I don't know. But whatever reason, all of these kind of non-American impressions and perceptions of Americans that he has in this novel, yeah, they might come across as offensive like they did to me, but they're still valid because that's still a historical perspective on Americans that people had at the time. Just because you disagree doesn't mean it's valid to ignore it or brush it aside. Mm -hmm. It's still something that should be discussed. Yes. Well, thank you for sharing all that because I didn't know who the author was, but... 
hearing all that really does help put a lot of it into perspective. Yeah. And as you said, it was really a treasure trove of daily life in 1887. Yes. And other nonfiction aspects of the book were really great. Like, personally, I was really intrigued by the dissection of cultures, specifically English, American, and French. And studying the way marriage or elections or ranks in society or gambling even was viewed, it was very interesting. And it was really curious to see how an Englishman viewed Americans, Frenchmen, and Britishers, or vice versa. As a French-Canadian, I have my own opinions on all these people, and it was very interesting to compare my views and your views to the characters in the book and their own views. Yes. Looking at this book as nonfiction is what redeems it, for sure. Yes, very much. I think the other aspects of history or humanity that were really interesting to me, for one thing, as you mentioned, I've never seen Prince Albert Edward dealt with in a book, or Queen Victoria, yes. for that matter. She's always been, you know, just the queen. Also, the part about the British election was fascinating. Yeah. Even if it lasted less than half a chapter, I would have loved to hear more about that. That was so interesting. That could have been a really good dramatic point for a story to lead up to. Yes. Instead, it just gets dropped in as these facts. So once again, if you forget that it's trying to tell mm -hmm. a story and just focus on the facts, yes. it's really interesting. Yes. And the final thing that was super interesting about this was the author was actually trying to vindicate the reputation of croupiers at gambling tables in the south of France. Although culturally, we have lost the context, that is still a very interesting bit of history. And it goes into all these big lectures about, well, this is what it's like to have this job as a croupier yes. in Monte Carlo. This is what people think of us and stuff. So yeah, there is this whole subplot devoted to people who work in the gambling profession yes. and how they can be just as noble and upright. Although I did see one original review that mentioned the fact that shortly after this book was published, there was a huge scandal involving a croupier in Monte Carlo. Yes. Unfortunate timing, but the book did still make it to a second edition, and we're still talking about it today. <laughs> yes, yes. So to wrap up the episode, my closing thoughts, I'm kind of divided on this book. Personally, I really appreciated the Gilded Age contemporary history. Yes. The small things like popular books, daily habits, stuff like that. I agree. The story itself was poorly done, as we explained at length. <laughs> I'm glad I read it. I recommend it to Gilded Age enthusiasts or history lovers. But this is not a novel, so don't pick this up as a novel. Pick it up for nonfiction. I'm not sorry I read it. I might not ever read it again, except for history, probably, but it is still worth reading, so don't trash the book if you have it. <laughs> Give it to someone else or read it yourself. I don't know, but it's still worthwhile. I agree. I won't be adding an original copy of this book to my home library, and like you, I do not recommend this book as an enjoyable work of fiction, but if anyone out there is looking for some detailed primary source material about life and travel in Europe, in the late 1880s, then I can, as a historian, really recommend Miss Bale's Romance for your research. And this is something we've neglected to do in our first episodes. We need to remind people of this. If you want to read these books for yourselves, you can. Yes. Because they're free. They're all in the public domain. Yes. And we have included a free download link in the show notes. So scroll on down and click on that link and read it if you dare. 
And if you do dare, please tell us what you think. Do you agree with us and all the century of reviews that have come before us? Or are you actually pro Miss Vale? We'll see. Like you said, this is great nonfiction. Yes. So let us know what you think about it. And now it's time to close the cover on today's story. So join us next time when we revisit the past and examine the present through the pages of another antique novel and we uncover just what it means to read like a Gibson girl. Thank you for listening to the Gibson Girl Review, a Curious Antiquarian production. For complete show notes, transcripts, download links, and more, please visit us at gibsongirlreview.com.